around, my husband was suffering from depression. I was like seven months pregnant. He comes into the room and he'd gotten laid off from his job. And I was running a daycare out of my house and um, hitting my physical limits earlier and earlier in the day. I mean, I was just really at like this really vulnerable place. He comes into the room and he was like, it's not that I want to kill myself, but, and I don't think I even heard anything he said after that. I was terrified. The money was running out. Dad had been floating us some money, but that wasn't going to be able to, you know, that wasn't going to last forever. And um, I got to this place where it's like, you know what, God, I don't know what your plan is for me. I don't know what the lesson is, but I surrender. Episode R035 features Arlena Allen, host of the ODAT Chat Podcast. What's an ODAT, you ask? Well, it's one day at a time. Arlena is an alcoholic who has been sober for half her life, but she still attends multiple meetings every week. In this episode, Arlena and I talk about her first experience with alcohol at somewhere around the age of 10. And she explains how her sister covered for her, and that led to a whole codependency-type relationship for a long time. We also talk about the Eskimos who introduced Arlena to recovery, and why in California people call someone who brings someone into Alcoholics Anonymous an Eskimo. Very interesting. Plus, Arlena talks about how God showed up in a mighty way, after she gave him an ultimatum to do his job. Arlena shares why journaling is such an important part of her life, how the death of a couple of friends influenced the launch and the early success of her podcast. And she tells us more about her project, Sober Life School. Let's get to it. Hey there, you're dialed into Reboots, featuring stories about people who have been forced to start over in life or in business, all walks of life, anonymous or named, high profile or low down, stories with heart, soul, and grit. Because knowing and sharing our stories is essential for living a life of joy, experiencing healthy relationships, and impacting the world around us in a positive way. Here's your host, Tracy Winchell. Hey, Arlena, thanks for inviting us into your life today. I appreciate you giving us the time. Oh, listen, I am super excited to talk to you. We had such a great conversation when you were on my podcast, so I am really looking forward to this conversation. And I, you. I've, I've listened to a couple of your episodes, the one with you and your husband on the ODAT chat podcast. Beautiful story. And then thanks. this week, I heard you with... Omar on the Share podcast, and that dude is a hoot. He's so much fun. He is awesome. Yeah, really good podcaster. Yeah, he is. And it's good to know that I'm not alone here in this quest to destigmatize recovery because, man, everybody can, everybody's got something that we're just messed up about. And if we want to get better, yeah. the 12 steps are a great place to start. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I went to a um, women's recovery event recently and called She Recovers and their premise is everybody's recovering from something. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it's all about solutions. So everyone struggles with something. And so you've been sober for 24 years and is your recovery centered in AA or just all sorts of 12 steps? 
Yeah, no, I got sober in 94 through Alcoholics Anonymous and have continued that practice for the entire 24 years. Well, it'll be really good for um, our listeners who are accustomed to hearing me talk about Celebrate Recovery. I love the opportunity to to share your AA story, and we'll get into that. But first, I want to ask you where you share your story and why. I share my story um, mostly in AA. I, I shared in a meeting yesterday morning. There's a 7.30 morning that I was invited to speak at. I'll be sharing tomorrow morning at a, at a large 12-step meeting. And then I have a couple more this next week. So I, I speak frequently and, and, you know, just to, you know, women's meetings or mixed meetings, it doesn't matter. Whenever somebody asks me, I always say yes. And if I can't that, if I already have a prior commitment, I'll reschedule. But yeah, mostly, mostly in 12 steps. So why do you share your story? Typically, I like to start out talking about my parents. I have really nice parents, non-addicted. <laughs> I guess, I, guess uh, I should probably say that, you know, there's a lot of alcoholism in my family and you're looking at all of it. <laughs> not my parents' fault. Uh, they did not, you know, teach by example. My mother was born and raised in Mexico City and dad is from Kentucky. So um, first generation on my mom's side, but I, you know, I'm a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution, you know, so my people on daddy's side go way back. So it's kind of the best of both (laughs) worlds. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of cool. (laughs) So, but uh, yeah, I grew up in the church. I was raised in a Presbyterian church and learned about God really early on. So I've always had this concept of a higher power as they sort of refer to it as, but, you know, for me, I'm very God-centered. But, you know, some things happened when I was young. I was sexually abused when I was younger. And now that I'm in recovery, I found out that that's very common. It is. Yes. Um, There's a, a man who wrote this book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, and it's Gabor Mate. And he's amazing. If you Google him, there's all kinds of videos. And, and But his book was amazing because it really spoke to what I learned in Alcoholics Anonymous, which is that time does not heal all wounds. Uh, the pain waits. Mm. And, um, you know, I had these ghosts from my past. You know, I was experiencing this um, abuse as a little girl. Uh, it started when I was really young. And uh, I was also going to church. And so I felt, you know, very common uh, feelings out of abuse like that is that I felt dirty. I felt bad. I felt wrong, broken. I mean, just all those things, really low self-esteem. And in contrast, I had this world of religion where it's, we're striving to follow the principles of Jesus and, you know, sort of this striving for perfection. And I didn't get all the information. The rest of the information is we're human. We have frailties. We're given grace. We are already forgiven. It's not about trying to be perfect. It's about striving towards these principles. But what's interesting about principles, it's really more of a mental construct like the horizon. The horizon is something that you can walk toward but never arrive at. It's a mental construct like you can see it, you understand it, you can walk toward it, but you will never get there. 
right? right? And that was something that was never really communicated to me in a way that right. I could take into my heart, you know, and there's always that difference of that three foot drop, right? From your head to your heart. And I was just missing that. And listen, my parents didn't really know what to do with me. Um, they divorced when I was about seven, which was really hard on me. My dad was like the nurturing one and, and he left and he was always in my life and he had very good man. My dad is a good man. And, you know, he was there for me, provided child support, you know, the whole nine, but it was still hard for me that my parents divorced. And because of how I felt about myself and my experience, I didn't understand that I took it on like it was my fault. You know, like years later in recovery is when you, you know, when you unravel and unpack all that stuff, that's when you find out, oh my gosh, I took that on as a child, that it was my fault somehow. Like if I could have just been better, that maybe that wouldn't have happened. You know, very, it's a very self-centered, and I'm not saying this in like a self-judgment type of way, but that's what people do. Mm-hmm. That's what little kids do is they take it on and think that, you know, because I'm the center of the world, this must've been my fault. Mm-hmm. So, so that's where my addiction was born really is from this place of low self-esteem and when I was about, I actually don't know how old I was when I had my first drink, but I think I was about 10, maybe even younger. My mom went out on wow. a date. My, yeah, yeah, I know. My, my mom went out on a date. My par- I never saw my parents drink, but for whatever reason, there was a dusty old bottle under the cabinet. I think <laughs> I thought it would that'd be, a, probably somebody left it there from a party or something, but I thought it'd be a great idea to drink some of it. And I have an older sister, two years older than me. She and I were home alone. And I thought it'd be a great idea to drink some of this booze. And so I did. And I'll tell you, Tracy, I remember it was like it was yesterday. The I remember taking my first sip and it burnt my lips and it burnt all the way down. But when it hit bottom, that warmth spread through my whole body and I felt really good. And I didn't realize how bad I felt until I felt good. And it was like the juxtaposition between those two feelings, the really bad and the really good, that was, it was such a contrast in feeling that it was like an awakening. It was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to chase this feeling till the day I die. And, you know, I felt numb. It's like nothing hurt. Like I fell down and it didn't hurt. And, um, listen, by the way, my sister was not drinking. It was party of one. (laughs) (laughs) Now, how old was she then? If you were like maybe 10-ish, she was... Yeah. So she's like two years older than me and she was the compliant child, right? She was the good girl. She was the compliant child. I was always like, my mom always referred to me as the wild child, you know? Um, (laughs) Little did I know, right? I know, right? (laughs) I always jumped in everything with both feet that, you know, very, what I've come to understand is like very typical, like alcoholic behavior, black and white thinking, all or nothing, you know, big feelings, big emotions. And, you know, bless her heart, my mom just did not know what to do with me. And she managed my emotion with anger. Like growing up, yeah, growing up. And I, she's not a villain in this story. I understand. understand. Yeah, I I love my mom. And and I I say that, oh, is not, oh, bad her. It is, that's totally me right? Oh yeah. You can see it coming. You know what I'm going to say? Anger, man. It's funny because, yeah, it's so funny because maybe the circumstances are different. Maybe we look different, but I've really come to understand is the feelings are all the same, right? Mm. All, all the feelings are rooted in 
you know, I'm not enough, not, you know, not worthy enough or whatever. It's, um, you know, it's all fear-based and just misguided is what it is. But, uh, yeah, mom didn't know what to do with me. And, um, you know, I, I talk about how when I was growing up, my predominant feelings were guilty and wrong. And, um, I felt like mom had two feelings too. She was either really happy or really angry. And I felt like she saved the happy face for the outside world. Like she'd be yelling at me and two seconds later, she'd be on the phone talking all sweet to her friend, you know? And it's so funny as a parent, I've done that same thing myself, <laughs> yelling at the kids. It's, oh, hi, Becky, how are you? <laughs> I'm your sponsor like, and my life is perfect. <laughs> totally two-faced, you know? It's like, oh, I'm so happy to hear my friends. Like these kids are uh, getting on my last nerve, but <laughs> I think that's their job. <laughs> Pretty sure it's in their job description. Get on my last nerve. So, but it's interesting because I have more compassion for my mother mm. as a mother. So, but listen, at that age, I didn't get it, you know? And so that's kind of how our relationship was. And, and I started drinking and using very young. Um, I remember that night I threw up all over the place and my sister cleaned me up and put me to bed, never said a word to my mother. Years later, I asked her, I was like, hey, how come you never said anything? And she said, because I would have gotten in trouble. Um, yeah. So what that tells you is that our fundamental paradigm was about being responsible for each other and not taking any responsibility, any personal responsibility. Right. Uh, and so, the, yeah. And so, and I was never, uh, I didn't learn by example about like, sorry was never a word that my mother had ever said, you know, she never apologized for her behavior and, you didn't know how to talk things to resolution. You know, it would be like, we'd get into these arguments and she'd bring up this and that. And, and pretty soon there's like 10 things on the table and I don't know what, what we're fighting about anymore. Right. You know, and her thing was, uh, we'd come back later and her thing was, I never said that. It was crazy making. It would make me crazy. And she gave that to my sister and I. And so we were doing all that with each other. You know, you could say whatever you wanted to say and then deny it later. It was just total insanity. Step one, denial. <laughs> I know, right? So, but um, yeah, I found peace and relief in drugs and alcohol and in men, quite frankly. I really bought into that idea of Cinderella, the Cinderella idea that if I could just find a man and find love, then I would be saved. You know, and the church didn't help in that regard because right. um, correct Jesus, if you, you find that man's love, then you will also be saved. So, I, but I skewed it, right? So I got caught up in the romantic fantasy of... Well, and here in the South, you know, I, I never married. I, I It wasn't for any religious reasons to not get married or any personal. It just kind of never worked out. But mm. for years when I would go to... A, a class reunion where I went to, I graduated with 15 other people, mm -hmm. 17 other people. Wow. That's um, a small class. Yeah. Fundamentalist Baptist. Oh yeah. Rigid school. And for years I got, uh, when are you getting married? Why aren't you married yet? It's uh, just kind of not a priority, which is a whole other story of my addiction, addiction to work. Right. When you said um, a function of the church to, to be a Cinderella and find the guy, man, that is true in the Bible Belt, sister. I hear you. Yeah. And yeah, it's just an interesting, interesting thing to get sucked up in, but it's so prevalent, you know, and 
that, you know, society really expects us to follow a certain path. And then if you don't, um, you're broken or you're not good enough or something's wrong with you or, you know, you have to answer the questions. Yep. And I, I interrupted you. You were on a roll and I apologize. Oh, Um, no problem. I will get right back on it. (laughs) When, when your story with Omar fascinates me that toward kind of the turning point, you were dating a cop, right? <laughs> he was literally my get out of jail free card. He so he was a DUI. He was a specialist DUI too, cop. or something. Yeah. So tell me, what the heck? <laughs> that's that's just isn't that funny. So yes. from the first drink to my last was a series. I would have what I, what I referred to as like a series of like episodes because I could never predict my behavior once I started drinking. But like, I'd wake up the next morning and be like, oh my God, what was that all about? And as it turns out, I was not able to manage my feelings. I would just stuff them. And then when I drank, it would all come exploding out. And I talk about how I have two alter egos, Wimpy Wendy or Badass Betsy, because I was either... I was either fighting or crying. I was that girl at the party, you know, fighting with someone and then crying in the corner. And some poor codependent person would be consoling me. And it's just exhausting melodrama. Oh, yeah. Other, just, people, other oh. people probably saw that, but no one was more exhausted than you, right? Seriously. Um, yeah. Who knows? But, and then recently I began to admit, oh, you know what? There was a third alter ego that would come out, which was like slutty Karen, <laughs> which who always came, wow. showed up sooner or later. And, you know, my tagline, I've been saying this for years to some people's horror that, um, if it was in a bottle, a bag or blue jeans, I was doing it. <laughs> you know, anything to change the way I felt, you know, I, you know, so that's just a big part of my story. And it's so funny how, the women in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous can relate that, you know, and really what's sad about that is that I was selling myself out because Mm -hmm. I really was looking for love and I didn't know it was, it turned, as it turns out, it was love that saved me, but it didn't show up the way I thought it was going to. Mm -hmm. Right. I was searching for love, but I was off. So, you know, I did the whole drinking and using thing Till I was 25. And like you mentioned, I was dating this married cop, by the way, throw that in there. Nice. Yes. Super fun. I learned later through therapy that I had an intimacy issue. Mm. I was specifically choosing people who were unavailable, mm-hmm. but I was lying to myself so that I could go into the poor me story like, oh, nobody loves me. And you know, poor me, I can't find anyone. I find these people and they don't love me back. And it's like right. crazy person. See, like, you're too- Mine's probably somewhere in there like that. I haven't explored it a ton, but yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, it's a fear of intimacy, which is yep. rooted in I'm not good enough. Or, or being in love with the past. Oh, which is also unavailable to the present. Probably not. Yeah. It's amazing the obstacles that we put in front of love. It's in front of what we, you know, my work now is largely about learning to receive 
and learning to build self-esteem and learning to feel like I'm worthy of good things. Like I, for years, um, you know, I've always had a job. I've, I've been working since I was, since the neighbor lady would let me babysit at like 13 and then I had a paper out and then I got jobs. I've always had at least one job, but it's this idea that I need to struggle to receive. I need to work to receive, work hard to receive, earn something. Um, you know, in the, in the church, it's like you learn that, you know, forgiveness is already given. Grace has already been bestowed upon you. You don't, it's not something you, you don't have to earn your way into heaven, um, so to speak, uh, whatever that means to you. But it's so ingrained in me that, so it's just been a difficult thing to change in my mind and in my heart that I'm worthy of love. I'm able to receive and my self esteem, you know, building my self esteem so that I can allow myself to receive love Me basically too. and acceptance. Me too. Arlene. Yeah. 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 And we can talk about some of the, some of the tools, but I'll definitely get there. But I did want to mention that the reason I even was able to get into recovery is because I had a, a sales rep position. I was an outside sales rep for a transportation company, which meant, um, and I'm in Silicon Valley. So there's a lot of industry around here, but um, shipping and receiving is typically ran by men. And so I was dealing with a lot of, a lot of men and uh, two of them were in the program. And so that they were, (laughs) I've heard them called uh, people who bring you to the program are called Eskimos, which I think is super cute. Yeah. Isn't that cute? I think that's a Southern California thing. This one lady on my podcast, Haley Mortensen, she, she has a website called a sober and um, she she told me that, and I was like, that is so funny because, and it's come up several times. So it's like, Rand, these two guys, Randy and Mitch, fine, upstanding men of Alcoholics Anonymous. They shared their story in a way that was about attraction. They weren't promoting it; they were just sharing their stories, and uh, they would li- they were listening to my crazy ass stories, and um, because I would tell my business to anybody, <laughs> it's done still long enough. And uh, they shared with me like why they didn't drink and what happens to them when they put alcohol in their body, how it makes them, they're not able to predict their behavior and their bodies don't process alcohol normally. Blacking out is a sign of alcoholism because it means you're, it's not a moral issue. Alcoholism is not a moral issue as it turns out. It's a physical allergy combined with a mental obsession. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that I'm one of those people that has the body chemistry that if I put alcohol into my body, that my body does not physically process the way other people, I, um, I black out, you know, which means that your, your short-term memories don't get transferred into long-term memories because of the alcohol. You know, my body lacks a, a certain amount of enzymes that process and digest alcohol. But however we want to look at it, I would go batshit crazy, but it was the emotional turmoil that I was disconnected from that drives the compulsion to want to change the way I, the way I want to change the way I feel. Anyway, these two guys, this is all stuff I learn, I learn later, but these two guys, Randy and Mitch sort of brought me in and then immediately turned me over to the women. And isn't that amazing how they didn't listen to your stories and then say, girl, you got a problem. They just started sharing their stories. 
right? Yeah, they were. They would relate. They'd be like, "Wow, I felt that way too," because again, it's not about the situation and the specifics of the situation. It's about the feelings underlying. Mm-hmm underlying or the outcomes of the feelings. And so these guys then handed you off and I still, why the heck did they call them Eskimos? That's interesting. Oh, maybe because Eskimos lead you out of the cold and into. (laughs) Okay. That makes sense. So they, they handed you off to some women, which is kind of, so kind of AAs can be mixed, but they can also be, gender specific, right? So the way it works in Alcoholics Anonymous, um, for those who haven't been, is that there are mixed meetings and there are gender specific, like there are closed women's AA meetings, there are mixed meetings. And so Mitch took me to my very first AA meeting and uh, Randy kind of, I never, I don't think I ever went to a meeting with Randy, but he was one who was kind of explaining the steps to me, like what they were about and kind of giving me the lay of the land. And they were, they both were like, you know, um, you need to get a sponsor. It needs to be a woman. So in my mind, and listen, this is all opinion. You will not find this anywhere in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's tradition and it's customary that women work with women through the steps and men work with the men for a couple of reasons, because it's a very intimate experience, right? And when there is a part of the steps where you go into your searching and fearless moral inventory, which includes a sexual conduct inventory. And (laughs) you can probably imagine where I'm going with this, right? It's like, you need to be, you know, people get really close. They call it trauma bonding. Like there's actually a word for it. There's people trauma bond and it's, it gets very confusing. I've seen men and women try to do this where if a man is trying to take a woman through the steps and they aren't, yeah, it doesn't work because you get very intimate and it's very easy to cross over and think that you're falling in love, you know, and then you add in like a sexual conduct inventory where you're talking about really um, very sexual things, very titillating perhaps, you know, it just Mm -hmm. gets messy. It's just a bad idea. And, you know, there's just too much, room for disaster, like complete disaster. Because you know what we're you know what we're talking about, Tracy? We're talking about somebody's life is on the line. Like alcoholism and drug addiction is a near-death experience. Let's not pretend it's not what it is, right? We're talking about life and death in the in these extreme cases, right? So don't mess around. I don't it's just it's just not it's just not responsible. And any man in Alcoholics Anonymous who says that he can do it, run for the hills. I was told early on, there is a lot of wolves in sheep's clothing. This is not well persons anonymous. It's (laughs) Alcoholics Anonymous, right? This is not the hotbed of mental health, right? So beware. Um, It goes goes for the women too. And I've heard many a man say, crazy in the head, good in bed. (laughs) Never heard that one. Yeah, we tell the boys too. I tell my, I do have male friends. It's not like I don't have male friends in the program. I tell them, you know, be careful of the new ones. They are, it's very alluring. Let's just say that, you know, stay away. (laughs) You know, they, so they, and there's also this sort of guideline that's probably not in the book either that you don't make any major changes your first year, don't get into any major relationships your first year. Although I broke the rule 
And my husband and I got together when I was five months sober, but we've been married. We've been together 24 years. Wow. So. <laughs> so you've been sober half your life. Half my life. Yeah. And you're still doing meetings. Yes. And the reason I'm still doing meetings is that for a few reasons, because it's a great place for me to do service. Like my, I am not immune to relapse. I'm very clear that just because I've been sober a long time doesn't mean I'll continue to stay sober. I've been around long enough to see people with long-term sobriety relapse, and it is horrifying. I do not want to have to get sober again. It's easier to stay sober than it is to get sober. So, But going to meetings serves a few functions for me. So I'm able to share the message. The book talks about nothing ensures sobriety um, as much as intense work with an alcoholic, right? So I go to where the alcoholics are. I, I give, but I also receive, right? I, I have a sponsor that I work steps with um, who knows me very well and knows where my red flags are. And, you know, she knows she can help me when I'm in denial. Denial is don't even know I'm lying. I can be lying oh, yeah. to myself and not even know it. You know, I'm, I try to be a truth seeker, but truth of the matter is, is that I have fears. I have blind spots. I'm, I have human frailties. I'm perfectly imperfect, but I need others to help me. People who can hold a safe space for me and help me to see where I can't see, right? And that's what my sponsor does for me. I also need the opportunity to be able to share, to pass on what was so freely given to me, right? And so um, I'm currently sponsoring about eight girls right now, and oh, they're not... Wow. They're not brand new though. There's a, I have a, a couple of brand new ones and they require a lot of time, like bi-weekly meetings. But uh, most of my girls have long-term sobriety and uh, we just sort of practice like maintenance stuff. But um, I go and I, you know what? I go to meetings and it helps. It, they just remind me of everything that I know, right? It's like we have, we have the saying that uh, in AA that we have a quick forgetter. Mm. You know, it's like, it's like I, I can easily forget like all the things that, that I know. So I go, I go to meetings, I provide, and you know, I go to meetings and I, let, I listen and that's providing service. Um, I, they ask me to share. So I get up and share my experience, strength, and hope. And, and uh, that makes me, that's a self-esteem building activities, being of service, right? So I get to be of service and I get to be healed and, and pass along everything that that was, you know, so freely given to me. So that's why I continue to go. To me, it's like alcoholism and addiction is kind of like um, being a diabetic where you just need to take your medicine on a regular basis or you get sick. So I know if I don't take my medicine on a regular basis, I get sick pretty quick. So I've sent you down a ton of rabbit trails here, but every, <laughs> you know, you, you keep saying these cool things. I'm just going to go down one more before we kind of wrap up. Sure. How, how you came to sobriety and then finally finding that love of your life. I hear this a lot. I'm fascinated by this. I, I think I understand it, but I don't know how to describe what it means to hold a safe space for someone. That mm. is powerful, and I do not know how to describe it for my non-recovery friends. Can you do that for us, maybe? I'll try. That's such a great question. You know, it's something that... um Maybe I've just taken for granted, but um, the way it works with my sponsor and I, she sits in my presence or on the phone or whatever, and she listens. 
and she's listening with an open heart and she's also very God-centered and she's not looking to give me advice. She's waiting for God to bring an idea to her mind. And I don't know if that makes sense or not, but this is how it plays out. I will share with her what's going on with me. And this is what she says to me. She'll say, well, what's coming up for me is, and then she shares honestly and gently with love and compassion and empathy about what's actually coming up for her. Like, oh, when I hear you say this, you know, it makes me think of that. Or have you thought about this or that? Or she'll bring up ideas. You know, she's just very like led from her heart, but it's not like, oh, you should do this or you should do that. It's none of that. It's none of that. It's just like, oh, what's coming? I'm, I, you know, this thing kind of makes me uncomfortable. I wonder if, if you've considered, you know, what the other person is thinking or, you know, it's like if I were in that person's shoes, maybe they're reacting to something you said. Is there something that you maybe feel like, you know, you didn't feel good about in the moment, you know, were you in a peaceful, I mean, it's just, it's a conversation, but she loves me. I know she loves me and she's not judging me, right? Like I know in my heart that she gets my kind of crazy and it's not like I want to be crazy. I didn't choose this. I'm looking for help out, right? And so she just is open, you know what I mean? She just holds the space and says, let's just talk about this. And because she loves me, I go through my stuff faster because I feel safe to be honest. Wow. That is powerful. And that was one of the hardest things yeah. for me to learn in an open share group and in and, and Celebrate Recovery. It doesn't matter what the small group meeting is, 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 if it's a step study or an open share group, there are five guidelines that, that we, we read. One of them is no crosstalk. Another is we don't fix one another. Another one, of course, is uh, confidentiality. And so, so what mm. ends up happening pretty often, crosstalk is also considered to be when someone just can't speak for a few moments, when they're just gathering themselves. And so mm. there can be, especially when we have newcomers, there can be long moments of silence Mm -hmm. and it's so difficult sometimes to not interject or hand somebody a Kleenex and yet it is so important to just sit with them and to be with them Mm -hmm. and not try to fix them and that's man that's powerful that's where people start to get better and when they you know sometimes they'll just say i I, I can't and we'll say thank you and we make sure to call them by name and so Mm -hmm. that to me is where a lot of a lot of healing begins when we just if that's what they want to do with their four or five minutes to just sit there Mm -hmm. i think that's powerful Yeah, can I tell you the tissue handing is my biggest pet peeve. Is it really? Yeah, because um, pay attention. When it comes up, when someone cries and someone hands them a tissue, they're breaking that connection they have to their feelings. So I've been in a place where I'm finally, finally able to connect with my pain and I'm starting to share it, 
and I'm so in my space and I feel safe and it's finally coming out and someone hands me a tissue and I have to, I'm jolted out of my flow, my process, and I reach for the tissue and it breaks the spell and I'm right back to being guarded. And it's my biggest pet peeve. I see it happen all the time. That, and listen, I understand. Nobody means anything by it. And forgive me if you're a tissue giver. No, you will not I, be. I was. It. I got broken yeah. of that about four, five years. Well, five years ago. Yeah, it didn't yeah. last long. Yeah, because I've seen it happen so many times when someone is finally able to. So here's the thing: we spend so much energy trying to disconnect from our feelings. That's what the whole reason for drugs and alcohol is. Or food or sex or shopping or workaholism or gambling or porn addiction or whatever you use, it's to disconnect from your feelings, right? And um, we get to this place of these support groups. We're being supported as we reconnect. Have you ever seen those old sepia pictures of the switchboard operator? Oh, sure. I remember them. Yeah. I mean, so there's a switchboard with all these holes and and there's this picture of this woman with like these plugs and they're all over the place. And it's like, I feel, when I first got sober, I felt like the the switchboard operator holding a plug and not knowing. It's like, where does this feeling go? What is this feeling I'm having? I couldn't even identify half of the feelings I was having because I had spent so much time disconnecting from my feelings. And then they come to Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm, and I'm like this raw nerve ending because I'm feeling everything, but I don't know what it is. And I'm getting to this. And I would have these moments where I was finally, I was having a feeling and I'm going through the process of identifying what it is and I'm sharing and I'm crying and then some, someone hands me a tissue. And then I'm like, it kind of breaks the spell. And, you know, I can keep talking, but it's not at the same level. I can't go deep again. Right. Right. So, and I understand why people do it. They're trying to be helpful, really. They're trying to fix is what it is because they're uncomfortable. In CR, we, in a lot of groups, we have codependency groups for that, right? Yeah. Well, listen, I don't think there is any alcoholism without codependency. Mm, interesting. Okay. We learn we we learn to be chameleons, right? It's like who do you want me to be? Yeah. So I can so I can be who you want me. So I we can both be comfortable. Yeah. I got lost. What was your question? I I got lost too. But I loved that. Oh, the holding the safe um, space. Safe space. That's I think that's important. And I you've given me words to try to explain that because. There are ways that we can be a safe person, Mm -hmm. even if we're not doing the 12 steps. And I I think it's important to learn to be a safe, safe space for anybody. I I can't say that I'm always that, but I'm trying to get better at it. Oh, yeah. And if if I can put words to it, then I can get better at it. So thank you for that. Yeah. And it's really just a guideline, really, because maybe there is an appropriate time for a tissue. You know, someone has so much snot coming down their face. It's like, (laughs) please, we are all uncomfortable now. (laughs) Yeah. Including you. Yeah. Whatever. It's just all guidelines. So let's back, 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 back in to your story. Okay. That was a great question, by the way. Thank you. Um, that's, that's yeah. At your first meeting, your friends mm-hmm. got you to your meeting and handed you off, mm-hmm. and that fixed everything, right? <laughs> <laughs> I guess not. You're so funny. 
Well, so first of all, I was terrified of the women because I did not grow up with healthy relationships with women. So I was terrified of women. And truth be told, I spent so much time and energy decorating the outside that I felt like I had nothing going on on the inside. It was like, oh my gosh, the one thing that I had was my exterior and the women don't care about that. But I, And I knew there couldn't be nothing, but I was terrified that there was nothing on the inside. But I was so desperate, so desperate to be sober that I was willing um, to do anything they told me to do. So they said I had to work with the women and, and do the steps, you know, get a sponsor, get a book, read the book, work the steps with the sponsor. And and that's what I did. And I, the, the way I chose my sponsor was, um, my name's not easy to remember. Arlena is not a common name. Nobody ever remembers it the first, the second time they meet, but this one woman did. She remembered my name. And Tracy, I got to tell you, it was like the clouds parted and the sun was shining and it was like, this is the woman, she's going to be your sponsor. So, and I kept hearing about this ominous fourth step. Like I kept seeing people do steps one, two, and three relapse, one, two, and three relapse. I didn't think I could afford a relapse. I was terrified. I was like, I'm going to be that one person in a hundred. I think they say get sober. I was like, I'm going to be that one person in a hundred. I'm slightly competitive. <laughs> so I was like, that's going to be me. And um, I asked this woman if she would listen to my inventory. And that's how I asked her. And bless her heart. She said, I would be honored. And then she said, we're going to work. We're going to start with step one. So that's what we did. She met me every week. We The right, the 12 steps is, um, if Alcoholics Anonymous is largely a writing process. So we would meet weekly. She would give me an assignment. Step one, define the definition of powerlessness and the definition of unmanageability. And how did those two things apply to my life? Like look back and can you find examples of powerlessness and unmanageability based on what the dictionary says? So that was a really interesting writing process to go through relationships, girlfriends, um, guys I was dating, work, my family, all these different situations. And you're still single through this process. You you haven't you haven't Yeah, this is at the very beginning. Yeah, this is the very beginning. And so that's that began the writing process of seeing where I was. And she and I were reading the book together. And, you know, step two, um, being restored to sanity. It was like I was very clear that I was insane, you know, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. The other idea that has rocked my world is that a problem can't be solved with the mind that created it. And I was like an Albert Einstein saying, and I may not be quoting it exactly correctly, but that idea rocked my world because it meant that I was asking the wrong questions and I was getting answers, you know what I mean, to the wrong questions. And I was coming to conclusions that uh, were inaccurate or were not serving me or I was just, I just had bad information. And so I needed to get outside of my thinking and, you know, it's one of those things like what they say, like, it's hard to fill a cup that's already full. You know what I mean? It's like, it just opened my mind that my information was flawed. And so that was, that was the important part of step two. And then step three, turning my will and my life over the care of God. That was easy for me because I grew up in the church. I actually spent a bunch of time at the Southern Baptist Church, which was um, interesting. Honestly, um, that was hard for me. 
What? Be going to the Baptist church? No. Or turning your life, life over the care. Yeah, the care of Why? Because God and I had it going on, but I didn't want to involve other people in my life. Uh, so now okay. then we're back at step two, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Insanity of doing the same thing over and over again, expecting yeah. a different result. Okay. Got so, it. yeah. So you're, you're, okay. you're, you're step three, that, that turning your life over to the care of God, that was kind of like, shoo, got that one under control for you. But that's where I struggled. Yeah. So it was interesting because I had completely thrown out religion. Because when I was growing up, I asked God to fix me, and he didn't. <laughs> Meaning, um, there were times when I was desperate, like, God, fix me, fix me. And I, was, I would wake up the next morning, and I would s- still be the same jerk. And I came to the conclusion, that I was like, okay, well, if I can't be good, I'll be good at being bad. And I, that was my, I, I didn't realize it until, you know, relatively recently that I believed I was bad. And I asked God to fix me and he didn't. And what I didn't understand was, is that my human frailties, my human frailties serve me in the sense that it always reminds me that I'm not God, I have character defects and that I need to rely on God and that that creates a relationship with God. And magical things happen when I'm able to surrender and stay open and look to God for help. Because um, my best thinking got me into the worst situation of my life. <laughs> you know, it's like, but it's interesting when I'm allowing God. I, I mean, and listen, my concept of God changed because it was like, I'm a kind of a science girl. And I'm like, I needed evidence. And I, I like the idea of God being like the master organizer, the master planner, that in the sense that God can shift things around. People. God can use people and situations to my benefit. You know, I've recently been struggling. I had a friend pass away at the beginning of the year and it was really horrible. She's 40 years old, got the flu, turned into into pneumonia and then sepsis. And then she died within 12 hours. Mm. Mother of three kids. I mean, she was really turning her life around. And and, uh, so I really struggle with the idea that, that God has a plan. How about... God can make any situation, can transform any situation into right. a beautiful, miraculous thing. I think the notion that God took your friend because he needed her is stupid. Oh, thank you for saying that. Yeah, um, that's some BS. I mean, I just, it doesn't work for me. It just doesn't work for I me. It, doesn't, it makes no sense. No. And it's like, there was, it's like, please make sense. Like, if nothing else, because truth is truth no matter what. Truth is truth because it's uh, irrefutable, and um, that, that there's. I'm just. It just needs to make sense, and and so there was a lot of things. And, and so, listen, there's plenty of things that don't make sense, right? But yeah. I feel like God can transform any situation. And from that is a completely different approach from God needed her in heaven more than we needed. That's no, thank you. It was was not his perfect will for her to die, but I believe he can bring good. You know, it's like the song, he makes beautiful things out of the, out of the dust. I believe I good can come from that, but I don't think he tapped her on the shoulder and said, come with me, let all these other people suffer. I just don't buy that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you know what, there will be more will be revealed. 
maybe one day it'll we'll have the, all the information, yeah. you know, yeah, or not. Maybe. But regardless of all that, you know, I have seen evidence of God, and um, I needed I needed personal evidence, and I've had so many experiences that now it's undeniable for tell, me personally. And tell me the story that you told Omar. I, I do want to come back to your friend who mm-hmm. died of the, the flu when it comes time to kind of explaining how you started your, your podcast. But mm-hmm. um, the story you told Omar on the Share podcast recently, you talk about meeting God in that place where now you're married, you're, you're sober, but it's Christmas, there are financial issues, oh. and you're pregnant, and yeah. then there's this huge doubt. God, you haven't oh, fixed yeah. me. I had to fix yeah. myself. Kind of walk us through that. Yeah, so let's see. I'm probably I'm at least 10 years sober, I think. And my husband had gotten laid off from his job. I have a three-year-old. I'm pregnant with my second child, and... We're on track to go bank to lose our house. And a common experience for me is I was raised with uh, God won't do for you what you can do for yourself, right? So I'm like all about doing the footwork, but I cross the line and then think that I'm supposed to be doing God's job. And I have a hard time letting go and I have a hard time surrendering. And it was interesting that I was in a position physically where I could not do anymore. There was nothing I was going to physically be able to do. And my husband was suffering from depression. I was like seven months pregnant. He comes into the room and he'd gotten laid off from his job. And I was running a daycare out of my house and um, hitting my physical limits earlier and earlier in the day. I mean, I was just really at like this really vulnerable place. He comes into the room and he was like, it's not that I want to kill myself, but... And I don't think I even heard anything he said after that because when someone says that they're saying... He's basically saying he's thinking about killing himself. So I was terrified money was running out. Dad had been floating us some money, but that wasn't going to be able to, you know, that wasn't going to last forever. And um, anyway, I got to this place where it's like, you know what, God, I don't know what your plan is for me. I don't know what the lesson is, but I surrender. If you want to take the house, take the house. Like I was insane. I was insane. I just felt like, I don't know. I was just so, I was scared, but then I got tired of being scared. And it was like, I was clearly powerless over the situation. It felt too big. It felt too scary. I felt too weak and vulnerable to do anything about it. It was just a terrible place to be. And I was sharing openly at meetings, like I'm scared. I know you're not supposed to pray for money, but I need some, I need some money. You know, I don't know what's going to happen. And it was like, couldn't ask for anything. The only prayer I could say was thank you. The only prayer I could say was, I don't know why that's bringing up feelings. I feel sad all of a sudden, but um, it was such a humbling experience. But I could say, thank you for my little boy. Thank you for the little boy that's about to come. Thank you for my daddy who's floating me some money. Uh, I could say thank you to my support group who has helped me to get through the day without drinking because God knows that's not going to make anything better, right? And um I was scheduled to go to my sister-in-law's house and God bless her. She's a beautiful, sweet, salt of the earth woman. She had a lot of money and she had a big, beautiful house. I felt so less than like a complete failure. And I had no money to bring anything to her house. And I was so ashamed. Um, And I went out to my car and it had been raining. And um, I was just at that place of surrender. And I was like, okay, God, 
I surrender. Whatever your will is for me, I will accept it. Anyway, I go out to my car and I see that under my windshield, there was something under the windshield and it was wrapped in plastic and I had pulled it out. And Tracy, it was a gift card for $100 for the grocery store. And that was my sign from God. I was like, God is with me. God works through people. And somebody heard me and somebody loves me and it's going to be okay. And I was able to bring something to my sister-in-law's house. And it was, that was the 11th hour. I got my message at the 11th hour. And do you know, Tracy, everything turned around after that. My husband found a job. We were able to pay our bills. We were able to pay my dad back. I had my baby and everything was fine. And I just had to, I had that feeling of all I had to do this whole time was surrender and know that God loves me. And surrender has been the transformative experience in my life. That was the vibration. I don't know what it is about that energy of I surrender to you, God, and do with me what you will. That's when everything changed for me. Wow. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Arlena, because... love that story. There are times when... I want to pick back up the surrender. And I remember the moments in in my life where I just said, okay, because I'm like you, I want to work for it. I believe that recovery requires a lot of work. Recovery is not convenient. It takes work. It takes effort. But I, my default position is to work Yes. For a thing that I'm struggling with when mm-hmm. pretty often I need to just go, oh, yeah, I, I just I quit. I, I, can't, mm-hmm. I can't. This is you, God. And those yeah. once we Help once we do have an experience like that once, mm-hmm. I think it gets easier to just go, oh, OK, I can find that sweet spot. Again, because I'm going to lose it. Yeah. yeah, we lose it. It's confusing. In all honesty, it's confusing. And sometimes I forget, like, what's my job? What's God's job? It's, and um, one of the barometers I have found that is if um, I'm striving for something and I can't do it with peace, it's probably not God's will. Yeah. If I, don't, if I, can't, if I can't have peace around it, then it's probably not God's will. But it gets confusing. Right. It does get confusing. That's why I need, and, and listen, this is about asking for help too, right? It's like asking God for help, asking people for help. It's like, I do not have all the answers and we do need each other. And it's a beautiful thing that we need each other. I love it when I'm able to be of service to somebody else. It builds my self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that's one of the things that, that I teach a lot is that when building self-esteem and, you know, we need to create a network, we need to create a support system, we need to reach out and ask for help. And a lot of times people tell me, yeah, but I don't want to bother anybody. Mm-hmm. But what they don't realize is that you're giving somebody else an opportunity to build self-esteem and you're doing them a favor. Mm. I mean, yeah. 
don't be a, don't be a jerk. I mean, there's yeah. limits. <laughs> People, yeah. if you call somebody, ask them, do you have a few minutes to talk? Right. <laughs> you know, right. and if they don't, don't take it personally, move on, call someone else. That's why it's important to be current right. people. And that's um, maybe now's a good time to share that um, on my website, Sober Life School, I have a, a connection cure challenge, which is it, it's a worksheet that you can download from my website for free. And really, if nothing else, it is so important to learn the process of, I call it willingness calls. And a willingness call is that you reach out to other people and it's, it's a willingness to participate in your own recovery, right? It demonstrates willingness. And it's one of those right actions. It's like, there are actions that we need to take, right? And this is one where you're building your, you know, you pick up the phone and you just say, hey, do you have a few minutes to chat? You know, here's a little bit about what's going on with me what's going on with you so that you're reciprocal. And then sometimes that's it. Sometimes you can just call and say, Hey, my sponsor's making me do willingness calls. I just need to check in and, you know, and maybe I don't have, I don't know what to say. Maybe that's all you say, but I mean, come on. It's like when you share a little bit, then they share a little bit and pretty soon you're having a conversation and pretty soon it's like, Hey, you want to meet for coffee next week? Or you want to meet at a meeting? And you know, you go through a week of this and suddenly in the next two weeks, you have plans, you know, and it gets you out of your house. It gets you out of yourself. It helps you to feel connected. And and then you become current with several people so that, you know, when something happens, um, when it hits the fan, you will be current with a few people and you won't have to go into the whole backstory. You can just get right into solution, right? Wow. So that's why it's... The, that's powerful. Yeah, it really is. And so I have a worksheet that you can work through that's sort of like a guide and you know, please consider me. I'm never too busy. People don't actually reach out that way. I think people think, oh, you have a podcast, you have a website, you have, oh, you're too busy. No, I'm not. <laughs> Email me. Um, consider me your first connection. I, I want to know what's what's going on with the people that are struggling. You know, there's no no need to suffer in silence. Is that something um, your your first sponsor, is that one of the assignments she gave you or is does that absolutely. come from your sales background? Uh, no, definitely. It's and I don't. I know that different AA communities or like groups are different. Mm-hmm. Um, just from talking to people all over the country since I've been doing the podcast, meetings are done differently everywhere. But that seems to there seems to be this reoccurring theme of when you're new to the program, they ask you to get some phone numbers and like reach out to people. Right. And um, when I see a newcomer, I always am sure to get their number because nine times out of ten they won't call you. They're too scared. Mm-hmm. You know. And, you know, I reach out first and then they, then they call me back. And, and that's what building a, su- a support system is, is about. It's like reach out and pay attention to who calls you back, not just texting, but who calls you back to have a conversation on the phone. You know, not everybody's going to do that. Texting is fine, but it's not the whole, right. it's not the whole thing. That's, that's the, um, I don't know. It's, but anyway, pay attention to who calls you back. Cause those will be your people. And once I start calling people, it creates a connection. And when, when things go wrong for them or they're having some feelings, I'm the one that they think about because we just talked on the phone. You know what I mean? So it makes it easier. That's how you build a support system. Mm. Let's shift gears to, and I do want to come back to the, the willingness call, but I want to kind of shift gears to the sense of urgency for launching a podcast. We've talked about your friend who died of the flu and she was like one of your very first guests. Tell me, kind of walk me through how grief sort of 
caused you to to take that idea in the back of your head and move quickly on it? Yes. I had already had a, a sales podcast. So I'm in Silicon Valley. I'm in high-tech sales. And there were no other women who were specifically talking about um, you know, solving the problems of high-tech software sales. So I had been doing that. And then it had been on my heart to do a recovery podcast, but because of the traditions, I was really scared to do it. There's a tradition that it's about attraction, not promotion, that we mean that we maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and film. And I was very torn about that, whether I should do it or not. And then a friend of mine, her name was Gina. She actually was at a 6 a, the 6 a.m. meeting that I go to and um, she died two hours later in a car wreck. Mm-hmm. And Gina, um, it came, you know, death has a way of clar- cutting through the BS and clarifying things. It's like, wait a minute. I'm worried that they are going to judge me. I'm worried about what they will think. Number one, who are they? And how are they in charge of my life? Mm-hmm. You know, if, if this is on my heart, you know, Maybe I should look into this. Come to find out, there are like hundreds of recovery podcasts, by the way. There's blogs, there's... And a part of it was, you know what? Mainstream media has outed people who go to A. I mean, mainstream media has outed the 12 steps and Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm actually grateful for that because I have some personal opinions about how it's so important to have that personal anonymity. However, we do need to get the message out of recovery and there's also, I think it also fosters that stigma of shame, you know, like it needs to be kept secret. It needs to be kept at the basement yes. level of meeting, you know, so there's like, and here's the other thing. There's so many paradoxes in recovery. All information conflict conflicts in, in, in context, right? Where it's like, mm-hmm. it's important to be open about your recovery. So people see that there's a solution. It's also important in different contexts that we maintain personal anonymity for the, so to create safety. So there's a place for both, right? Yes. Yes. But it's based on context. It's in context. So, um, all these lessons are wrapped in context, but, um, so, so Gina dies in a car accident. I'm wrestling with these questions, but then I realize I'm going to do the podcast because I think it's important. So one of my first guests was Katie. And so I started the podcast two years ago and Katie was like one of my first guests. I think I can't remember if she's my first guest or my second guest, but yeah, fast forward two years later, Katie gets sick and, and she passes away suddenly and it's a shock to the whole community and it's it's rocked it's rocked the whole community in a lot of ways but uh I got I get a call from her sister and her sister had never heard Katie's episode and she called me to tell me that she didn't know that her sister had forgiven her they had had yeah they had had you know Katie had been relapsing for a long time and Katie lost custody of her kids around her addiction and her sister had played a part and her sister felt so guilty about that. And uh, she called me to, but Katie talked about how not only had she forgiven her sister, but that she was grateful because that helped her hit her bottom. Mm-hmm. And because she hit her bottom, she was able to surrender to the program and get recovery. You know, some, sometimes people have to hit rock bottom before they can get sober and uh, I don't mean to speak for Katie or her sister, but as an outsider, 
you know, looking in, it was so powerful that I thought, you know what, I'm so grateful that, you know, these two women, Gina and, and Katie, it feels to me like this is, this is God's purpose for me. It's like, I found my purpose. My purpose is to carry the message to the people who are still suffering, right. you know, and, and that's what I mean about God being able to take a tragic situation and turn it into something beautiful. Right. I have seen many amazing things happen through people who are just willing to tell their story. Yes. You know, I've had some guests who come on my podcast and, and tell amazing stories and it's, and it's reaching, I have, you know, 40,000 downloads, which, you know, internationally, which is not a huge number, but I think about it. It's like, maybe, you know, maybe that's, maybe there's somebody out there who hears what they need to hear that helps them. It relieves, relieves some pain. And, and if that's happening, you know, Katie's sister found some relief, you know, totally worth it. Totally worth everything that, Yes. But I do to try to get that message out there. Yes, I agree. And, you know, I came to recovery because of unresolved grief and anger yes. and anxiety and codependency and abandonment. And there, it's sort of like, uh, this is common. I, I, I have the privilege of, of introducing newcomers to Celebrate Recovery tw- mm-hmm. twice a week, two different recovery programs. Oh, so, so beautiful. It is so common for people just to say, I don't know what I struggle with, but it's a lot. I don't know where to start. And so you have pain, pain and no way to resolve it. Yes. And so I tell them not to worry about it. Once they keep coming back for a few weeks, they're Mm going to figure out which one's driving them the most crazy. Right. And so our tradition is, is that we introduce ourselves and then, name our struggle, usually no more mm. than two. And so I introduce myself oh. by saying, I'm Tracy, or, or that that's the last thing I say. I struggle with, or I celebrate recovery over unresolved grief. My current struggle is perfectionism. But see, oh. there's codependency and mm-hmm. grief and, oh my gosh, there's a host of, and anxiety. There's a host of, oh of, of other things in there. But when I first started coming to celebrate recovery, I was afraid people were going to think that I had an addiction and I didn't want people to think that, right? So mm-hmm. I was really quick to clarify that. And I'm, I, I don't like admitting that, but I have to. So common. That's so common. But what happens today, there are about 40% of people who come to celebrate recovery who are dealing with some sort of an addiction. Um, mm-hmm. But now I'm very quick to explain um, what my struggle is because I don't feel worthy to be thought of as that person who heroically battles addiction. That is how how in high esteem that I hold my friends who are battling an addiction or in the process of overcoming one. Because you mentioned something a while ago, Arlena, that this is a fight for life. Mm -hmm. And even my friends who relapse and relapse and relapse, they keep showing up. And I just admire the hell out of that. But you know what, Tracy, you show up too. And 
what's behind all the addictions is pain. It's the question isn't why the addiction, it's why the pain, because everybody has pain, right? And pain left untreated will kill you. I, I don't care what it is. You know, it doesn't matter if it's codependency. There, there can be a time when the pain is so great, it feels like it's too big. Like I can't do it anymore. You know, depression is one of those things. It's like, I can't tolerate it anymore. It will kill you. And so the point is not to judge the pain. Like it's not a contest, you know, it, <laughs> That's true. you know what I'm saying? You're right. It's, it's not a contest. Your pain is valid and it's real and it can be relieved. And there's this old timer that says it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the problem is. The solution is the same. That's why there's so many kinds of twelve-step programs, right? The truth of the matter is, it doesn't matter what the problem is. The solution is is the same. The solution is simple. The solution is spiritual, and the solution has nothing to do with the problem. Mm. It has nothing to do with the problem. The solution is about love. It's about acceptance. It's about connection right? It's about finding the relief. It's about right-sizing. And that's something that I, that, you know, that's coming up for me when I hear you share. It's like, nobody's better or worse. Your pain is not any less valid than your friend's pain who's struggling from addiction. You know, it's pain. And right-sizing means that we're, that we're all the same. It's, we're not on a ladder where there's hierarchy. We're in a circle, you know, and that's why we hold hands at the end. It's a circle. Let the circle represent that none of us has to do this alone, right? Yeah. We're all, we're all, everyone struggles with something. And so it's like, let's, let's be gentle with ourselves. Let's be gentle with each other. Let's let go of the shame and the judgment. And let's all recognize that, you know, and it's a very humbling. We're all human, perfectly imperfect, right? We all need each other. And it's a beautiful life that we get to walk through our pain together. Like nobody has to suffer alone. You know, they say that pain shared is diminished and joy shared is, is exponentially increased, Right. you know, but it happens together. Like nobody does this alone. There's no, there's no pride in white knuckling it alone. It doesn't require any courage. That's true. Yeah. It doesn't work really well either. Mm-mm. We've tried What's it. What's the point? Tried it. Try it. We all try it. Doesn't work. Let's talk about a sober life school. Tell me what that's about. How does it? How does it work? I mean, you're you're inviting the reboots guests into yeah. um, a willingness call. Tell me a little bit more about sober life school. This sounds really cool. Yeah. So sober life school started because I thought, you know what? I've been sober for 24 years. I'm not a doctor. Um, I'm a peer, and I've learned things that I can teach others. I want to share what I've learned on a mass scale. So I started creating this digital product called the connection cure. And it's the connection cure is about coming, you know, breaking the disease of isolation. And I offer um, tools within the class, you know, it's like self-esteem 101, um, journaling 101, meditation 101. They're like just the fundamentals. Um, Here are some tools that will help you like practice self-care and you and I talked about the importance of journaling. Well, in the class, the connection cure, journaling is one of those things that is so important because it's about, I had, I had a, my husband's sponsor actually told me that we have a BS filter in our elbow. And when we write longhand, 
the truth comes out. <laughs> That's so funny. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. You can see things in black and white. And yeah. I know a lot of people suffer with um, anxiety and insomnia. I keep a journal by my bed. And I often, before I go to sleep, will write down everything that I'm worried about. I get mm-hmm. it out of my head and onto paper. And I sleep like a baby. You know, I give it to God. I surrender and I give it to God. The journaling is really good in that regard. I also found this journal called the five minute journal and it's, it's got a positive message, like a, an inspirational quote. It gives you three lines to write what you're grateful for. And I always write in longhand. I am grateful to God for, I am grateful to God for, and that's just how I do. You can just write, I am grateful for whatever. And, um, I always feel obligated to write saying, okay, sober, safe, and healthy. Right. Those are my first, those are the three things I'm always grateful for. I'm always grateful that I'm sober. I'm always grateful that I'm safe and I'm always grateful that I'm healthy. I'm grateful for my husband. I'm grateful for my kids. Those are the things that always have to go on the list. So I kind of shorthanded at the very top, but I also include three other things. And so it's sometimes it's like, and I never run out of things. I mean, after you practice for a while, like I'm grateful for, I'm grateful to be a woman in America right? I am grateful that I have access to infrastructure. I have roads. I have health insurance. Sometimes I'm grateful for what I don't have. I'm grateful for that I don't have a disease that has crippled me. I'm grateful that I don't have blindness. I'm grateful that I don't have a jacked up skin condition. <laughs> I'm, right? You know what I mean? Yes. I'm gra- yeah. I'm grateful I don't have lung disease. I'm grateful I don't have cancer. You know, anyway, I can go on and on about the gratitude part. So it does it, how long does it usually take you to do your gratitude part of that? Well, so it's three lines. So it takes me, so it's a five minute journal. So the idea is that this um, book is, so I write three things I'm grateful for, then three things that would make today great. And I was like, oh, that's not typically how I think. But if I'm asking the right questions, what would make today great? Oh, uh, most of mine, it it usually turns into a a to-do list, to be honest, because that's what I like to do. It makes Mm -hmm. me happy to check things off. Anyway, so three things that would make today great. And then like my positive affirmation. So I set an intention for the day. You know, it's like, I am a creative. um, God and I are co- this is one of my favorite ones. God and I are co-creating to make the world a better place. That's Mm, one of my very Pollyanna, but whatever. Um, very beauty pageant, right? I want world peace. <laughs> hey, it's <laughs> yours. That's well, the beauty. Whatever. It's <laughs> right? yours. It's mine. And that's really, truly what I want. And then the second half of that I do at the end of the day, which kind of feels like a 10 step, you know? Um, what surprising great things happened? And uh, what could I have done to make the, the day better? You know, were there right. obstacles to the three things that would have made today great? You know, what obstacles? Mm-hmm. And then I can sort of mitigate for that. But it's, you know, literally just, I sit down and I write it out in five minutes and I tend to throw it in my bag so I can take it to work. And sometimes I'll just fill it out at work or, but that's just, I do that in addition to like, I like to do long form writing, journaling from this book, Morning Pages by Julia Cameron, who side note was married to uh, Martin Scorsese. I found out later. I know somebody who knows her. Yeah. She goes to 12 step meetings in in, uh, New Mexico. Hmm. And she's totally, I'm not busting her in it. I mean, no, she, I understand. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, her, her, she wrote this book that has been 
hugely popular for like 25 years. And her thing is, is that, um, that you write three pages every day. So it's like stream of consciousness. So everything that is on your mind and it's like, you just get it out on paper and then you can go about your day. And it's amazing how, um, it's like, we all typically have the same repetitive thoughts day in and day out, but getting all this crazy out of your head and onto paper frees you to be able to think new thoughts, right? It gives you space to be present with, with what's actually happening in your life, being present and in reality. It's, a, it's an amazing process. And, and that's one of the things I teach in the Connection Cure is journaling 101. So super important for your, for recovery. Yeah. That's kind of one of my big assignments that I give people, and I'm really pumped. I get to actually teach the Step 10 lesson not this Monday night, but next Monday night. Awesome. So they're going to be 60 or 70 people. We're just going to workshop it. We're not going to use, we're, we're going to use part of the basic Celebrate Recovery curriculum, but mm-hmm. we're just going to workshop it. I'm going to give them index cards and say, we're going to come up with between five and eight questions that are yours, or you can just use the ones that, that, that I use. Mm-hmm. We're going to help them build one so that it's more than a maintenance step. It is actually a character flaw buster. Mm, love that. Maybe. So we're going to try it. But I'm with you. When I get uh, my sponsees to just do five minutes, and sometimes it can be a gratitude log. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's the step 10. Sometimes there's a, there's a heart check. So are you hurting? Are you angry or anxious? Are you resentful or are you tired? Oh. And so that's kind of help. what helped me work my way through anxiety mm. um, is if I answered yes to two of those things, I sent a text to my accountability team. Oh, if that. it was three of those things, two or three days in a row, I didn't text my sponsor. I called my sponsor. Okay. And if it was four of those things, two or three days in a row, it was time to have a meeting. Okay. And so that helped me deal with just the anxiousness and anxiety. And I just did that every day yeah. probably for a year and a half. Oh, pretty awesome. Brilliant. Yeah, great, great practice. So are these the assignment or the, the Sober Life School or do you give your sponsees some of these assignments? Is that kind of how you develop the curricula? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Yeah, a lot, a lot of the things I've learned over the years. And plus, I'll be honest, AA is not the only gig in town and it's not the only modality for recovery, right? So I studied... I'm a voracious learner. I'm, I'm, I'm obsessive about it. I currently have like 75 titles on, on my Audible I just, am, yeah. you know, I'm just so thirsty for knowledge. You know, the internal introspection, it just never ends, you know. every And it's interesting about the steps. It's like every time I address the steps, I get something different out of it because I'm different. Mm. I'm a different as a result of the steps, right? So when I approach it, I'm approaching it with a whole new set of information. Mm. And so it lands differently. And mm. But it's not the only thing. So I've learned things from a variety of different books, uh, The Course in Miracles, The Fourfold Way, The Four Agreements. M. Scott Peck wrote The Road Less Traveled. I mean, there's so many. Um, I, have, I have hundreds of books that have just A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. 
uh, Seat of the Soul by Gary Zukoff. I mean, there've been so many books that I've read. And so I've taken all the pieces that have helped me the most and tried to put it into this this course. And so Sober Life School, the first course I have is the Connection Cure. It's how to treat isolation and get connected. And I, and, but it's really like real basics, like self-care 101, the tools, you know, like meditation, building your self-esteem. Because if you want to know what you feel you deserve, take a look at your outside because your outside is a reflection of what you feel you deserve on the inside. Take a look at the relationships you have. When I get a woman who comes to me and says, he's such an a-hole or he's this or he's that, what they're telling me is, this is what I feel I deserve. Mm, Wow. Yeah. And so this is, and it's not about them. This is not about whoever you're in a relationship with. This is about you. Why are you allowing this in your life? You know, why is it that you don't, why is it that you feel so bad about who you are? And then let's, you know, meditation is about quieting the mind. It's, it's about, it's actually the practice of getting quiet. It's focusing on the breath and your mind will, is going to wander. And it's the practice of bringing your attention back to the breath. Meditation isn't about long periods of not thinking. Meditation is about the continual practice of bringing your attention back to your breath. And the result is over time, as you practice, is that you will get longer and longer periods of silence in your mind, right? It's- oh, and then there's room for me to actually hear God instead of the stupid in my own head. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Praying is talking to God. Meditation is listening to God. Mm. So, but it happens through the breath. And so that's a meditation is a practice. So that I go into that, into the course, but self-esteem is huge. And there, you know, service is a huge, it's the easiest, best way to build self-esteem. If you want self-esteem, you do esteemable acts, right? You stop doing the dumb things, you know, like cash register, honesty, trying not to be selfish and self-centered. And, but service is the best way for building self-esteem. And I'll just admit, I'm the first one to admit, I never want to do it, but I'm always happy I did do it. There are times when I, I work full-time in a high-tech company and there are times and at the end of the day, I just want to come home, put on my soft clothes and sit in front of TV, but I've made an appointment with the sponsee and I'm, I don't want to do it sometimes. And then they come over and then we talk and then I feel the spirit of God in my heart. And they leave and I feel just so much better, like I'm living my life's purpose. And that builds my self-esteem. So that's, that's a huge thing. And, and yeah, so Sober Life School is, I'm just trying to put everything that I've learned into practical application and break it down the way it makes sense to me. And I just don't, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm just a regular person. So I just put it in regular language where I think it'll make sense to others. That's awesome. Yeah. So that's what I'm trying to do. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do offer some one-on-one people want to tell me like, everyone feels like they're unique, right? We're all really the same, but everyone's circumstances are slightly different. So it's interesting what they present with as we talk. I usually see something totally different. You know, I can, I've been practicing holding safe space for a long time, the loving, non-judgmental safe space. So people can come to me with their stuff. We can talk about what's going on and I can present information that will relieve suffering. That's really kind of the goal. So I'm, I'm available for that web, through Sober Life School. 
Okay. So if I just put a link in there, they're going to be able to say, book a call with Arlena. Yeah. So the first, so I have three classes, uh, two are still under construction. So um, the connection care is a class that's available now and you can buy the class for just the modules or uh, you can actually book one-on-one time with me. You can do it either way. I feel like it's important to have, I always did better with getting feedback and sort of the accountability piece. So um, that's what the one-on-one time is for is to have some accountability, but there is also relationship rescue, which is coming soon and uh, sobriety reset. So it's not uncommon for people with long-term sobriety to get to that place where it feels they feel like they're in a rut or they're feeling like it's stale or if people relapse, it'll be a good tool to um, use to sort of reset your sobriety. So those, the last two classes are sort of coming soon. I got to focus on this one class first and then when that one's yeah. you know, really churning. And it, it, it'll be continually updated. And What impact is working on these curricula have on your sobriety? Oh, that's a, what a great question. As I work with the girls, I have, I have a bunch of sponsees and as I work with them, it's interesting because I've been sober for a long time. So I don't feel the pain of brand new sobriety the way I used to. I feel the pain of life, right? Like right. I still try to manage my emotions and I don't want to get loaded. So that's fine. But they remind me of all the things that come up in early sobriety. And so as I'm sharing, I go, oh, that goes into the class too. So they, yeah, yeah, so they leave and I I write down, I go, oh, that's right. We were talking about this and that, and that's really important to put into the class. Yeah. So it just makes me, Tracy, it makes me feel like I'm living God's purpose. It makes it so that all the pain that I went through wasn't for nothing. You know, maybe I can help somebody else out of their pain right? Isn't that what we all want? It's yeah. like you, you, you find something that works for you and it's like we want to shout it from the rooftops, but not everybody's ready, right? So when people are ready, that's when I'm available. Like when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And isn't that why we share our story for redemption from the suffering and maybe even to see God in the faces of the people who, when they walk through the door three months before we're at the end of the rope and you actually saw them from across the room and they were smiling at somebody. Amen, sister. That is what it's all about. That's the good stuff. You can't buy that. Yeah. So a couple of questions. Mm -hmm. I know you've got this whole page full of amazing books. I do want to link to that, but I'm going to ask you probably the hardest question I've asked. Which one's your favorite? Which one would you first recommend? (laughs) So recovery, I would say that the first book I would recommend is the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the second book would have to be the 12 and 12. It's one of my favorite books. I read 24 books my first year of recovery. And I would say M. Scott Peck's The Road Less Traveled. It just hit me at the right time. And this is, this is what I'll tell your listeners is whatever book speaks to you, that is the right book for where you are in your journey. You know, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. So don't worry that you're not going to pick the right book. Follow your heart and the right book will present itself to you. So the next piece of advice that you would have for a newcomer, there are a whole lot of people who listen to the Reboots podcast and they're not in recovery because we talk about um, rebooting 
from business disasters or mm. to decide to take on a new creative pursuit. And so you kind of fit in a lot of these, but you've described recovery in a way because of your experience that no other guest has ever done. So maybe there's somebody who thinks, I don't think I have a problem, but I want to go support someone who does. Or maybe maybe I do have a problem. What advice or encouragement would you give to someone who's had enough, they think they're in at the end of their rope, but they're not yet ready to walk into a recovery meeting and say publicly, I've had enough? I would say, first and foremost, that there's hope. There is hope that you can find a solution that works for you. I would say that you, you can go to a meeting and not announce yourself. I would say that if you want to support somebody else, you know, you can go together and, and just know that not all meetings are created equal. Sometimes it takes some time to find the right group. I would say that there's tons of podcasts out there that you can start listening to different podcasts. And I've had people tell me that that's how they got into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous is that they listen to podcasts enough where they had enough information so that they didn't feel like they were walking into a meeting blind. Because I think the fear is the fear of the unknown, right? The fear of the unexpected. Like you don't know what to expect. It seems scary if you don't know. But if you listen to enough people talk about different kinds of meetings, you'll realize that it's not scary. And that, listen, if someone's in a meeting, it's because they have an issue as well. So you're there for the same reason. There's nothing to be scared of. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing, people, these are loving, sweet people who just want the best for you. And if you don't need what they have, that's fine. I mean, it's a take what you like, leave the rest kind of a situation. Mm something to be afraid of. Depending on the look on the faces and kind of their level of trauma when they walk through the door, sometimes uh, we'll tell a group, uh, (laughs) come back six times. And if you don't like it, we'll give you your misery back. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Right. We'll gladly refund your misery. I heard that. We don't, you know, you have to be careful about that. I certainly don't do that in every situation, but sometimes it's just like, y'all, I didn't want to be here either. The second best decision I ever made in my life was walking through the doors of a recovery meeting the first time. Mm. Best decision I ever made in my life is the next time I hit a recovery meeting. Oh, that's so good. I made that up myself. So, you know, I like it. I'm going to steal it. You can have it. (laughs) Arlena, I am just so grateful for your time and your energy and your effort and your knowledge and your encouragement and your kindness. I feel blessed or lucky or divinely inspired to have met you. And I just look forward to having a lot of conversations with you. If I can be of service to you and your tribe you're certainly going to be a blessing to my tribe when they hear your story. Oh, listen, you are a sweetheart. I I love the work that you're doing. I'm so grateful. I always feel like we have the best conversation. So I look forward to, uh, you know, a long friendship with you. And I just want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to to share and for your very thoughtful questions. You, 
you really are a gifted interviewer and you're doing great work. We're, you know, I think you and I are aligned in the sense that we're, we're just trying to help ease pain, right? It's like we have found solutions that we're trying to share with other people. So yeah, thank you so much for this opportunity to spend some time with you. I just, I think you're an amazing person. Thanks for connecting with me. Thanks, sweet lady. Okay, we'll talk soon. It's been a real blessing to get to know Arlene in the past couple of months. Show notes for this episode are at rebootspodcast.com, episode 35. We're going to hook you up with her willingness call challenge. Plus, we'll provide links to the ODAT chat podcast, some of my favorite episodes, and a link to the Sober Life School so that you can know what that's all about. And finally, if you don't want to miss another episode of the Reboots Podcast and maybe you're interested in navigating change in your own life, check out the rebootspodcast.com forward slash change. If you sign up, I'll send you a couple of my favorite daily habits that have helped me adjust to change, whether I'm making it on my own or someone else is forcing me to change. They've worked for me. Hey, I'm Tracy Winchell. We'll see you next time. Dale Valente. We hope this episode has helped you in some way. If so, we'd love to hear from you. Maybe someone you care about might benefit from the Reboots Podcast. It's easy to share from our website, rebootspodcast.com. The Reboots Podcast is a production of Winchell Storyworks Incorporated, a company dedicated to helping businesses and individuals know, share, and live their stories in order to impact the world around us in a positive way and to achieve financial freedom. Now I don't even remember what my point was. (laughs) Usually helps to unmute the mic.